Hey everyone, welcome to Redefining Recruiting, the podcast where we evaluate how the recruiting landscape is changing in accordance with current events and movements occurring in the world. Here, we aim to give recruiters, business owners, and change makers a platform to share their insights and experiences in order to give you guys a better idea of how to tackle the corporate world. My name is Jasmine. And I'm Alex, and we'll be your host for today's show. This podcast is brought to you by Enroll, a recruiting app that emphasizes personality over hard skills through algorithmically matching recruiters and talent. And you can learn more at EnrollApp.com, spelled E-N-R-O-L-E-A-P-P.com. Joining us on this episode is Austin Belsack. Austin works as a contributing writer to notable news sites like Forbes and Business Insider. In the past, he's worked as the Director of Partner Development at Microsoft, a sales consultant for Johnson & Johnson, and an account manager for several marketing firms. Additionally, Austin is the founder of his startup, Cultivated Culture, which focuses on using unconventional strategies to land jobs in today's market. Through his step-by-step process and unique strategies that have been featured in prominent magazines, Austin has helped hundreds of people land their dream jobs. Since launching in April of 2016, Austin has helped his students land interviews and offers at Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, and many more. Austin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both for having me. It's really exciting to be here, and I'm, I'm pumped to chat. Yeah. So um, to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? How did you start off, and where did Cultivated Culture originate from? For sure. So right now, I, um, I actually still do both things at once. And by both things, I mean, I still work at Microsoft full time. And I've been there for about five years now. And the cool part about that is I get to actually be on the other side. So I interview a lot of candidates for roles on our team. Um, we get to see the resumes that come in and, and all that stuff. So I get to be one of the people who makes some of those hiring decisions. But I also, and I think more interestingly for me, I get to see what people in the hiring manager or hiring team's position are saying about different people's resumes and their interview answers and questions and what they like and what they don't like. And obviously that's a a pretty small sample size, um, but it's been really fun working there. And once I got that job, I ended up starting Cultivated Culture because a lot of people asked me how I, I made it to Microsoft. So as you all mentioned, Cultivated Culture was started about four years ago, and it's grown into a community of about, I think we have about 450,000 people in the community right now, and they've gone on to land jobs at many of the places you mentioned. How did we get there? Uh, It really stemmed from my personal experience job searching. So for me, I graduated from college with a a pretty terrible GPA, uh, a degree in biology and and a job in healthcare at, at a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. And it just really wasn't for me for so many reasons. The the pay wasn't what I had expected uh, when I graduated, but that was really more my fault than anybody else's. Uh, The job itself was pretty grueling. I had to travel. uh, I spent a lot of time in my car. I had to travel to these hospitals to be there in time for surgeries at 6 a.m. But they were a couple hours away usually. So I was up at 2.30, 3.30 in the morning regularly driving out to these places uh, and then working a full day on top of that. And then my boss just didn't treat me very well. So I decided I needed to make a change, but I didn't really know where to start. So I went to the same people we always go to for advice, right? Your family, your friends, career counselors, the internet. And everybody told me pretty much the same stuff, which was 
you need to tweak your resume. You need to apply online. It's a bit of a numbers game. So you put stuff out there and hopefully, you know, something will come back. So I figured, you know, I've been told my whole life that if I went to college and got my degree, I'd, I'd always have an opportunity. Otherwise, you know, why would you pay all this money to go to college? And it turns out that that was not quite the case. So over the next couple of months, I submitted around 300 applications and I, I got zero offers out of that. I got a few pity interviews from like family, friends and stuff like that, but nothing really substantial. And it didn't really make sense to me because everybody who I trusted was telling me that this was the way, but it, it just wasn't working at all. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, right? So I had to find a new approach and an approach that fit me. So I wrote down a, a list of my criteria for my dream job. And I basically went out and I found people who met those criteria. Um, they were working at a place like a Microsoft or a Google. They were living in a major city like a New York or an LA or San Francisco. Um, they had done that you know, while transitioning industries. Maybe they came from a bit of a non-traditional background. And I just talked to as many of them as I could. I, I emailed uh, a ton of those people. And then I ended up getting on the phone with about 20 or 30. And I looked for common themes in their stories. I looked for common strategies. And I looked for strategies that I felt like were in my wheelhouse. And I basically took all of their information and I used it to develop my own system, which focused uh, less on the resume and the online applications and more on where the results were really coming from in hiring, which was getting a referral. So I, instead of applying online, I worked to understand who the hiring manager uh, was for the role or who was on the hiring team for the role. And I would work to reach out to them. I would work to build a relationship with them. And then I would try to find a creative way to illustrate my value, you know, especially coming from a non-traditional background in healthcare. A lot of people in marketing would tell me, well, you don't have any marketing experience. So I had to overcome that hurdle. And one of the ways that I did that was through something that I call a value validation project, which is more or less like a pitch deck or a proposal that you put together. But that's the way that we sell like anywhere else in business, right? We don't put together a, an eight and a half by 11 sheet of black and white paper with some like weird resume language when we're selling anything else. It's only for the job search. So I thought, well, why don't I just step out of, out of that box and try selling my experience the way that I want it to be seen and the way that I feel comfortable selling it. And that ended up working really well. So this is uh, making an incredibly long story very short, but I took that system and, and I ended up getting interviews and offers with Google and Microsoft and Twitter. And when I ended up at Microsoft and I had a lot of people asking me, you know, hey, how did you make that transition from being the student that you were, which was not a good one, to, you know, Microsoft? How did that happen? And after enough people asked me, I, I took everything that I learned. You know, I did a lot of testing. I did a lot of experimentation. Um, I kept a lot of notes on my results and my strategies and the performance. So I kind of baked that into a blog post and it got a really, really great reception. Um, a lot of other people were saying basically the thing that I ran into, the online applications are not working for me. And I didn't know there was another way, like, thank you for sharing this. And that's really when Cultivated Culture was born. Uh, so the rest is, is history. And we've just kind of been growing it around that message ever since. So I think that's actually a really, really cool story, primarily because I know a lot of people, they use the same system, but encounter like struggles, they keep on doing it, even though they're really, you know, not getting any success at all. So I think it's really impressive that in spite of this, and especially, you know, you said didn't come from like exactly a marketing background, you shifted completely and then sort of carved a new trail and now cultivated culture is helping others follow it. So kind of building off that, what do you think is missing from the current hiring landscape? I know you kind of talked about this as, you know, your work through Microsoft and seeing 
um, successful and sometimes unsuccessful candidates. So what would you say um, is currently missing from their hiring landscape and what can companies do to fix that? Definitely. I think the biggest issue is is just the way that companies are quantifying value. So the, the problem is the companies who have created these systems more or less because everything, it's sort of like the rich get richer type situation. So, you know, the way this whole situation came about was that many, many years ago, you know, decades ago, uh, online applications didn't exist, right? The internet didn't exist. And so how did you apply for jobs? Well, you, you know, would call the company or you would go to their office or somebody would refer you in. Uh, but there was a, a, a pretty limited pool. And these companies say, well, why are we limiting ourselves? You know, we can, we can bring in people from anywhere. We can hire the best talent, whether they're in New Jersey or India or, you know, Iceland or wherever it is, California, why are we limiting ourselves? And so that's what they did. And they created these online application portals, but then everybody took advantage of that. Right. And when we look at just human behavior in general, uh, humans naturally just want to take the path of least resistance. Like our, our whole goal with a lot of the stuff that we do in life, even people who are you know high performers and work really hard, like our goal is to get the, the maximum result for the like least amount of effort. And that's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how we are. But what happens is, especially when there aren't really any guidelines or there, there isn't much direction, um, people just put forth what they think is, is a, a decent amount of effort. And then they kind of let the system do the rest. And the problem is so many of, of these applications come through that the companies don't really know what to do with them. And so that creates a bit of a problem on both sides. So on the company side, the company basically had to find a way to deal with all these applications. And so that's where we started seeing the rise of these applicant tracking systems and filtration systems that scan resumes and look for specific keywords and experience and, and all that stuff. Um, and that comes with its own set of problems. But then on the candidate side, we start to see some fatigue, right? You know, when I think we've all experienced when you apply for that first job, you know, it's, it's at your dream company usually, and you're like so excited and then maybe you don't hear back from them. So then you go to like company number two and then number three, but by the time you're on application 70, right, you're not, the energy is not there. Like you're not spending the extra time. You're just like, let me change these three words in my cover letter and send it back out. And the reason for that is because candidates feel like they literally just throw their application in a black hole. They have no idea if anybody's looking at it. There's no predictability around the result that comes back. A lot of times they don't even hear back. And so it's sort of this two-headed monster where companies, uh, and I see this on LinkedIn all the time, where recruiters come out and they're like, well, guys, we would we would be able to go through more applications if you didn't send us, you know, these crap generic applications. And then candidates are saying, well, we wouldn't send crap generic applications if you actually told us, hey, I read your application and here's why you're not a fit instead of just ghosting me. And so it's sort of like these two sides just keep butting heads and nobody's really willing to give. And so I think that the piece that's missing is out of, out of all of this is, is just with those two things in mind, the way that that system works is just not geared towards finding the most valuable candidate. So when I, when I mentioned the rich getting richer, the system works for like a Microsoft or a Google or a Fortune 500 company because they're the ones who have the resources and the funding to 
go through most of the resumes. And also just naturally a, a higher tier of candidate is going to be applying to a Microsoft. There are a lot of people out there that think, well, I'm just not qualified enough, so I'm not even going to apply right now. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of the people who are super qualified are saying, I want to work there, so I am going to apply. And so it, the system works well enough for those big companies. And the problem is a lot of really great talent gets overlooked because they don't fit into the, the defined buckets of the applicant tracking system. You know, there could be an amazing candidate who just didn't have the right keywords on their resume or an amazing candidate that just used the wrong resume template that wasn't scanned by an ETS. And so they're going to be effectively removed from the process for to kind of oversimplify the concept. And so a, a roundabout way to answer your question, you know, what's missing, I think really a, a, a true understanding of capability and value is missing. There's no great way for companies to understand what this candidate can do for them because companies don't really give the candidate a chance to show that. So the example I always fall back to, which uh, is, is again, a bit of a, a generalization. Um, but, you know, when I was younger, I played soccer and every, every, August or so we'd have tryouts for the travel team. And like, I didn't show up with a piece of paper that like talked about how many goals I scored and like how far I could kick the ball and all that. Like I went and played. Right. And the coach was like, yeah, you're good enough. You're on the team or no, you're not good enough. And maybe even gave me some feedback, you know, what you really should work on over the next year is X. And that doesn't really exist in, in the hiring process. And I've posted about this a bunch on LinkedIn and there is, it tends to be one of the more controversial topics because everybody has an opinion on why that won't work and all this other stuff. But I think that if companies could find a way to essentially give candidates an opportunity to quote, try out for a role uh, in a scalable way that wasn't super easy to kind of copy or cheat on, if you will, which I, I think is possible given what we've seen with a lot of the other, you know, methods for for understanding intelligence or test scores or whatever it is i think it is possible if companies had that i think we'd start to see candidates end up being happier and companies also end up happier because they they're weeding out the people who are actually capable of doing the job and they're not so worried about the person who didn't do any effort and just press submit because if you force somebody to take let's say an hour-long assessment you know the people who aren't willing to do that maybe the same person who's just changing three words and, and pressing submit. So you, you kind of automatically remove those people. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's kind of interesting that this like broken assessment of value really serves as a barrier in re effective recruitment, right? Um, I think something notable about that is that so many people who are securing these types of jobs at like top companies are from top schools that usually come from like a well-established network, lots of resources. So it's super clear that there's like a very obvious opportunity gap in hiring, which is really difficult for those people who don't have network or like no connections at a company they want to work for. So how do you feel like this opportunity gap should be addressed by those looking to get hired at these top firms? Yeah. It, and it's, I mean, Jasmine, you made a great point. Like it's also a pretty inequitable process. So, you know, it's, it's the same thing we've seen with, let's say the, the SAT is a good, um, a good analogy, I think, if you will, or, or metaphor. Um, but basically, the SAT was implemented to create a more equitable space. But then, you know, the people with the means hired coaches who knew how to game the system with the SAT. And then all of a sudden, it, it actually increased the gap rather than making the playing field a little bit more even. And the same thing happens with uh, the online application systems. You know, you can go hire somebody to write your resume for you. 
and it'll cost you if you want a good resume writer, you know, seven fifty, a thousand bucks up to two thousand plus dollars. And you know, many people just can't do that. But the same people who can typically have those connections, right? Typically have that network. Um, and then the resources that are available to the people coming out of school, the students, you know, a, a school like let's say a Harvard Business School or a Harvard in general, with you know a $40 billion endowment or whatever it is, just has more resources at their disposal than a community college or a, a state-funded college or, or whatever it is. And so that system and that process where we rely on this thing that requires, it, it's not how well you can do the job, it's who can write the best resume. Uh, that is not an equitable process. And actually, we've seen that. So there's a study that was done, and I don't have the figures in front of me. I, I could try to find them. But essentially, what came out of it was that resumes that were, quote, whitened, so uh, both for African Americans and for um, Asian, and not even for, for black people and for Asian people, the the black and Asian people who changed their name and the stuff on the resume to uh, appear more white sounding, they saw a significant increase in callbacks versus, you know, non-whitened resumes. And I think that's, that tells you everything you need to know about, you know, why this process is broken. I'm really glad that, that you mentioned that. And I mean, in terms of the opportunity gap and what needs to happen, you know, I, I'd love to see companies just create some, some sort of assessment and understand, you know, wh what, what they're asking for in the role and, and come up with something that makes it easier for them to determine the quality of the candidate based on what they'd actually be doing in the role. Because a lot of the times too, like we hear, you know, we, one, we read job descriptions and we say, this, this sounds like a, a like a, a, a list that I'm sending to like Santa Claus because there's so much stuff on here and there's no way one candidate has all this. Like, how is this, how is this a thing? Or you read a description and it's just so vague, you have no idea what you're stepping into or you read a description that says one thing and then you get to the interview and it's a totally different thing. And so if we could just create some sort of process that uh, essentially allows us to assess candidates in, it doesn't have to be in a crazy way, but if, if even just a basic assessment that was not necessarily available to the public um, and maybe changed, you know, ever so often, but really keyed into, uh, you know, the traits of what makes a candidate successful on this specific team in this specific department. I think that's really where you'd start to see some of these problems getting solved. The problem is it requires a really, really big investment. And, and at the end of the day, it's going to have to come from the companies like job seekers can do what job seekers can do, but companies are really the ones kind of, you know, holding the reins here. And so I, I think it really has to come from their side, but that said, you know, it, I'm not letting job seekers off the hook because what I will say is with such a broken system that the vast majority of job seekers use, that actually creates an opportunity for you as a job seeker. So one of the reasons I was able to have the story that I have and land my job at, at Microsoft was because they were more qualified than me on paper fell back on their traditional stuff. So they, they just use their resume, they use their cover letter, they use their interview answers. And I went above and beyond to create this deck and to make it personal and to really understand what the company was looking for. And so that's the reason I got hired over candidates who might've had more on paper experience than me. And so if you are a job seeker, yes, the system is frustrating, but 
that actually creates an opportunity for you because when everybody else is playing into the system that doesn't work and you're willing to do a little bit more in a little bit of a different way, you, you really end up standing out. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the problems you pointed out were definitely, I think, problems that a lot of people know exist. Like you mentioned, um, you know, racial bias in the recruiting process, uh, inequity, allocation of resources, all those things. And I think a lot of people know they exist. But as you mentioned before, in order to really, really solve it for as big of a way as possible, it definitely would take a lot of you know money, a lot of resources and something that, you know, a lot of people in a lot of companies would be too much of an investment for them. So I know you kind of talked about this before, but for those people who are like currently, you know, in the mainstream process and are like submitting, you know, hundreds of these online applications, what feedback do you have for them on helping them stand out in the current hiring system? Because, you know, in like the birth of the internet, it goes from a pool of like a hundred people to a hundred thousand people from globally countries all around the world. So what would you say people can do to individually stand out? Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that you know, so I, I, I just read a great book recently. It's called The Obstacles the Way by a guy named Brian Holiday. And um, essentially, his his whole premise is that, you know, obstacles aren't in the way, they, they kind of serve as the, the a teacher or a mentor. And so w- one of his major points is that, you know, if you encounter an obstacle, how can you kind of take a step back and, and actually see the silver lining in that obstacle and, and what might come out of it? And so I think one of the big ones for the job search is, is what we just talked about. So if you look at the data here um, and, and going back to your point uh, about the Internet, like if, if we look at the data, 75 percent of people use online apps and job boards as their, as their primary method for getting in the door. So 75 percent of job seekers are using online apps. But you only have about a 2% chance of getting in the door when you apply online based on, you know, you look at the average number of applications per role um, and per company, and then you kind of whittle that down to, okay, maybe 20 resumes come through and then a recruiter looks at them and gets rid of, you know, 10 or 15 or whatever, and they end up bringing, let's say, five people in for, for an interview, and you kind of do the math on that, uh, it, it ends up just that the odds are super low. So if that's the case, you know, if the odds are low there, where, where are the odds higher? And that really comes from referrals. So referrals only make up about 7% of the applicants, but they end up accounting for around 40 to 80% higher. So when we look at that data, um, nothing in the job search is really like peer reviewed scientific data. It's all fairly anecdotal and done from surveys and stuff like that. But what I found in in spending a lot of time looking for those numbers, um, the estimates seem to agree on closer to 80. The most conservative I've seen is 40, and that came from a site called JobBite. Um, on the higher end from the Wall Street Journal, um, I saw 80%. And so I think it's safe to say that it, it the, the, the number is high, uh, and it does depend on the company and the industry and a bunch of other factors. But you know, when you start going after referrals, you're now competing with instead of 75% of the pool, you're competing with 7%. And you're basically playing in a space where the chances and the odds of success are just so much higher. So what I tell job seekers is that, you know, my whole tagline is, I, I help you land a job without applying online. And then people come to me and they're like, well, Austin, why do you have resume tools on your site? And why do you talk about resumes then? Like, you know, are you a fake? What's going on? You know, if you never applied online for a job, you would be doing yourself a disservice. You, you never want to cross something off your list that has the potential to, to get you a job. But what you want to do is allocate your time and energy proportionally to your odds of success. And so 
if there is a path like online applications where you have a 2% chance of getting a job, we want to spend a proportional amount of time and not saying, you know, 2% is kind of hard to quantify, but the way that I kind of break it out is you should be spending 10% of your time applying for jobs online and you should be spending 90% of your time working to build relationships with people who can influence your ability to get hired at these companies. And so, you know, we have a lot of tools on our site that are free to help people do just that. We have a resume builder, so you build your resume. We have a resume scanner, so you can see how it matches up versus, you know, what the company might be looking at. You run it through all that stuff, and then you send it out the door in 10, 15 minutes. There's your 10%. Now we can move into the referral side of things. And basically what we're going to do, and what I recommend is, you know, come up with a list of 10 to 15 companies that you're really, really excited to work at. And then go find 10 to 15 people at each of those companies and add them all to your list. You should have a minimum of about 150 contacts. And then you want to just get out there and engage with these people in uh, the, the through the medium that you feel like you can best connect with them. So that could be a cold email. That could be on LinkedIn. That could be through a personal website they have. There's so many different ways to do this. But working to build relationships with those people working to understand more about those companies, you know, what challenges are they facing? Uh, what initiatives are they driving over the next six to 12 months? What goals do they have? What's their vision look like? And then if you can kind of take the information that you learn from your own research and the information that you get from building relationships with these people, you can put together one of those value validation projects. And so through that relationship and through the VVP, you should not only be able to get a referral, but you also should be able to kind of separate yourself from the other job seekers because they're showing up with their resume, with their cover letter. And, and sure, you have that. But then you also have this thing, which really at the end of the day is a much more clear and valuable way to show this company you know, what you bring to the table. And so if you reallocate your time to focus on that, that's where the magic happens. And I, I think the biggest barrier is that people just don't know what to do when it comes to networking. Like I was giving a, a workshop at uh, Duke University um, uh, earlier this year and I asked the class, you know, raise your hand if you've heard of the term networking and like every single hand went up. And then I asked them, okay, you all know what it is. So if you needed to build a relationship with a hiring manager at Google, you know, what steps would you take to do that? And, and do you feel confident in those steps? And like not a single hand went up. And I think I asked it a little more concisely than that. But basically the point is everybody knows they need to network. It's like shoved down our throats, but, but nobody tells you how to network. And so stepping outside of your comfort zone is not easy for a lot of us and emailing strangers and like working to build relationships to get a job is like way outside of most of our comfort zones. And so I think that that's where the sticking point happens. Um, and so the, the whole thing that we try to do and, and I try to do is teach people some of the formulas and the tactics behind building those relationships. So it becomes a little bit more, not comfortable, but you know, easier, I would say, because the only way you get comfortable is by taking that step, going through the process, actually seeing some success and for sure, maybe seeing some rejection and failure. But once we get job seekers to kind of take those steps, that's really, again, where the magic happens because they start building relationships, they get referred in, they start landing jobs because that's where we're seeing the hires come from or through those referrals. Definitely. I think what you were saying, it really brought to mind, I guess, two sayings. Um, the expression, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I know a lot of people, even in spite of like, you know, the lack of success they had, they keep on putting all of their effort, all of their time to one area. And then the second was, um, you know, it's not what you know, but rather who you know. And I think that part's, I guess, undervalued for a lot of people who don't necessarily already have the connections. And yeah, a lot of people don't go out of there to look for them. But, you know, as you mentioned, that substantially increases your odds. For sure, Alex. And, and I would say like to add one on top of that, one of my favorite quotes is uh, from, from Mark Twain. And he said, 
if you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's, it's time to pause oh, and reflect. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not saying like, you know, if, if everybody else is doing something and you're doing it, like you're a loser, like he's basically saying, if you're doing the same thing as everybody else, like stop and ask yourself why you're doing this thing. And like, if your answer is you're doing it because it works, like I, I eat my food with the side of the fork that has the prongs on it. Everybody else does that, but it also works. That's why we all do it. But with job seekers, everybody's applying online, but is that working for you? And if it is great, keep doing it. That's, that's totally fine. But if it's not to your point, <laughs> don't keep doing it. Like what's the worst thing that could happen by trying a new strategy? You know, the worst thing is really ending up where you are right now. So uh, I think the two quotes you shared were great. And, and I always, I always throw the twain one in there because I think it's pretty relevant to the, the way the whole hiring process is set up right now. Definitely. And I think for that part um, on the twain quote, there's sort of like one end and the other on one end, you have to have, you know, as you mentioned, all like the resume and like a cover letter, because, you know, without it, you're like lacking from other candidates. But on the other, you also have to, I guess, like, like you said, go above and beyond in the sense that you have something special about your application. So kind of for the resume related notes, what would you say are some common mistakes that talent make on their resume? Because you know, that's arguably one of like a big thing that sets you apart besides a recommendation. For sure. Yeah. The, the, the biggest thing it comes down to that I see if, if I had to, you know, only share one thing, best bang for your buck, it's that people uh, on their resume, people summarize instead of sell their experience. And so what I mean by that is people use fluffy buzzwordy language that tells me sort of what you did but doesn't tell me what came out of it. And so that could be something like um, responsible for uh, planning and executing social media campaigns to grow audience and increase sales. Okay, that's great. But what does that mean? What kind of planning did you do? And what kind of strategies did you come up with? And how many followers did you actually grow by? And how many sales did you actually increase? Because you know, if you sold one more thing than last month, you could technically say that on your resume. You know, if you grew your followers by one person, you could technically say that on your resume. So how is a hiring manager, and the problem is most people are doing this. And so how is a hiring manager supposed to differentiate between you and the nine other people whose resumes they're reading that all kind of say a similar thing? And the way that you do that is through value and through measurable results and, and what came out of it. And so there, there's this formula called um, the XYZ formula, which is essentially, um, I think it's a, a accomplished X by doing Y as measured by Z or, or something along those lines. Um, but essentially what it's saying is like, don't just tell me what you did, tell me what came out of it. And so if we take that bullet and we, we maybe switch it up and said, you know, spearheaded, you know, an overhaul of our digital ad targeting resulting in, you know, a, a 17% increase in sales. And then we say that it's worth $10 million or something in brackets. You know, now all of a sudden that's a lot more valuable because we're including, you know, what came out of those actions. So because this is such an issue that I see, uh, I, we actually created a tool for it. So if, if you go to the site, resibullet.io, um, it's totally free and um, you know you don't have to pay for anything to use it. But essentially what we did was we we looked at all of these resume bullets and we sort of came up with our ideal resume bullet formula, which is essentially a mix of hard and soft skills, um, 
uh, action, power words, compelling language, uh, measurable metrics, and then the rest is kind of filled in by common words. And what we found is that if you use a specific mix of those things, you're going to end up with a really, really good resume bullet. Um, we also factor length in there as well. And so basically, we like now what I do, again, my whole goal is to get people to spend less time time on their resume and, and applying online. So I just have people put their bullets in there and, and it gives you a score based on which of those, like how many or how close you are to the percentages we've allocated for each of those categories. Uh, and then you can work to get your score up. So we've tried to make it easy to do that, but that's really the most transformative part. Like the problem is uh, so many people out there are, are spending time. And I, I see this like on LinkedIn and everywhere else where people are arguing about, you know, I'm using this font versus that font, or you have a horizontal line in your resume and an ATS will or will not be able to read that. And like at the end of the day, none of that stuff really matters if the content in your resume doesn't do anything to sell your value, because you're just going to sound like another generic person. And when there's 10 people who have all of this like buzzword packed summary, it's really hard to choose one. So again, this is an opportunity. If you invest the time to sell your experience and your value, you're going to stand out from all those other people who are summarizing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think these like more specific and quantitative details that you mentioned are definitely super important, especially in the hiring process. And someone who may be extremely accomplished or competent, um, if they're just simply unable to convey those things through their resume, then they just might not see results. And it's pretty evident that resumes can be very misleading and misrepresentative of the hiring process and the whole story. And we talk a lot about this kind of broken recruitment process here. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up all of this because um, one of Enroll's focus points is actually to reduce the sort of disconnect between hiring managers and talent um, by allowing people to really showcase their stories more and provide context to their resume. And in other words, it's the fact that hiring should ideally feature people, not just job postings. And given the limits of today's hiring software and recruiting software, do you have any like tips or advice for how people can use existing mediums to share their story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the best things you can do is get out there and start creating content online. And, and that doesn't have to be like blogging or writing that that can really be anything. So, um, you know, if you're, if you want to become a software engineer, uh, just go out there and start building stuff and maybe try to make that stuff relevant to, to what companies are looking for. You know, if you want to be, a, let's say, a data scientist or work in data analytics, go see if you can find some publicly available sources of data and put some stuff together. I was looking at <clears throat> some projects from a, a coding boot camp here in New York, and one person put together this project where they basically scraped uh, tweets from that, that were about airlines, and they basically did a sentiment analysis on what those tweets had to say about those airlines. And, and basically at the end of it, the result was, you know, how does, how do consumers view your brand positively, negatively neutral? And that's something that's really valuable. And then also something that could be applied to a bunch of other industries. So maybe that person goes and does it for a bunch of other industries as well. Uh, if you want to be a marketer, you know, start, start creating your own stuff. It could be writing blog posts or it could be starting an Instagram page and growing the following. Any, any and all of that is going to be beneficial because it gives you real experience to point to. And especially when you're a student, you know, one of the things I hear a lot is students will, will tell me, um, and, and even people who are more experienced or, or later on in their careers than students will tell me, like, I don't know how to quantify stuff on my resume. 
And so one, if, if that's the case, then you, you can go out and create these results for yourself. And the cool part about that is you can say like, what result do I want on my resume? Well, I want to have, you know, I want to be able to say I grew an Instagram to 10,000 followers. Well, nobody's stopping you from doing that. So just go do it. And then you can say that you did it. Um, but basically that, or just creating content around the stuff that you're doing or both. There's a lot of people out there I've seen who are going through the journey of, let's say, becoming a, a data scientist, but then they're also sharing content about that journey. And then people are joining them on that journey. And now you've sort of have this, this, um, you know, two headed approach where you're capturing people who are following you on your journey, but you're also kind of teaching yourself about this new field. And so I think I personally think we're moving out of the resume era and more into like the LinkedIn slash personal branding era. I think personal branding is uh, is an overused saying these days, but really, you know, what comes up when somebody when somebody goes to look at your LinkedIn profile, like what are they going to see? Are they going to see literally just your work experience and nothing else? Or are they going to see this like robust profile that has links to stuff you've done and posts and comments and things that you're leaving. And then what happens when somebody searches for your name online, you know, what's going to come up? Is it going to be basically nothing or, you know, stuff that people don't care about, like your Twitter account that you haven't used in however many years or whatever it is, or is it going to be a medium profile with articles or your portfolio that has a bunch of your work? Like you're in control of all this stuff. And we've seen a lot of the data shows that people are out there looking for this stuff. So I think the most recent stat I saw, I think the numbers up to 99% of hiring managers and recruiters are using LinkedIn as part of their vetting process. And on top of that, another company called Resume Go did a bit of an experiment. So they took, I think it was like 24 and a half thousand resumes. And they basically had a resume that had a link to a bare bones LinkedIn profile, a resume that had a link to uh, like a medium LinkedIn profile in terms of uh, the amount of content, and then a link to a comprehensive LinkedIn profile. And they basically found that uh, the resumes that that link to a comprehensive LinkedIn profile, so stuff we talked about with content and with you know links to features and stuff like that, um, those resumes saw seventy one percent higher callback rate than the other resumes that only linked to you know profiles that that weren't as robust. And so I think all that data is is just telling us that hiring managers and companies are investing the time to learn more about who's coming in the door and they are looking you up. They are looking at your profile, whether you like it or not. And so you're really in control of what that narrative looks like. And again, we've said it multiple times in in the podcast so far, but like this is another opportunity because so many people aren't doing this stuff. And so if you're willing to do the bare, like you do the basics, you have your resume and you have your cover letter, but then if you're willing to go 10, 20% further by having the portfolio, having the LinkedIn profile, you know, building those relationships, like you are going to be so far beyond the rest of the competition. Uh, I think you're going to see the opportunities go up. And I think you're going to see the caliber of companies that, that are interested in you go up as well. I think like you mentioned before, yeah, um, a lot of people um, don't really start making this content because either they undervalue the importance of, you know, really making content or a lot of them, you know, find it hard because they don't see immediate results. And I think it's a big misconception too, because, you know, you're not going to get like, if you're starting an Instagram account, 10,000 followers overnight, unless you buy them, of course. But uh, (laughs) yeah, so I think that's definitely right. And I think more people should be making this content, even if they don't necessarily see the results immediately. So to kind of wrap things up, I know you talked a lot about different ideas and different concepts from, you know, the hiring industry all the way to, you know, the inequity in it. So what would you say is 
if there's one piece of advice you could really give yourself actually in college, what would it be to shift things up? Uh, I, I would do exactly what we just said. So in college, I, I would always tell myself that I didn't have enough time to do all this other stuff. Um, and, and me, especially, I, I had more time than I think most people because I didn't, I didn't study. But um, I think students, you know, what you'll find is that when you enter the real world, you, you have, I think, less time than you might imagine you did. And so I talked to a lot of my friends and they say the same thing, but just get started on some of this stuff. Like you really have nothing to lose except for your time. And I know that that can seem really, really valuable and it is really valuable, but the earlier you get started on this stuff, the easier it will be because chances are like the first thing that you do, the first project you put together, isn't going to be like the one that lights you up. You, you have to do a little bit of experimentation. But the earlier you start building this portfolio or the earlier you start creating this content, the easier everything else is going to be. Um, and I would also say, like, just sending emails to people that you want to connect with. You can start with alumni um, or you could just start emailing people that, that you're interested in connecting with. But the, the .edu email address carries, you know, a little bit of magic with it where people are, you know, really willing to help students. And that seems to change a little bit when you become a new grad or a recent grad. So I wouldn't be afraid to start emailing people. And essentially what I would do is I would probably just say, hey, can I find an hour a day every weekday? So five hours a week. And I, I, I would recommend doing one hour per weekday versus five hours in one day. Um, but can I take that, that hour a day and can I spend 30 minutes of it working on some sort of project? And can I spend the other 30 minutes sending emails to, you know, one to five people who I want to connect with, who are doing things that I think are cool, whether it's working at a company I'm interested in or working on a project that I'm interested in or anything else. And then I would just rinse and repeat. And if you do that, you know, even just for a couple of months, I think you're going to see some pretty substantial results. And the earlier you start in your career, uh, the, the better this whole thing is going to be for you. So that's what I would tell uh, College Austin to start reaching out to people and to start spending even just half an hour a day on, on one of the projects or, or ideas that we talked about. Yeah, definitely. This emphasis, as well as just consistency on networking and like leveraging LinkedIn will definitely take people so far. And I guess um, to wrap it up now, um, we owe a huge thank you to you, Austin. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. For sure. Thank, thank you all for having me. I, I had a blast. And this is fun because um, this is stuff that I don't always get to talk about. And it's, it's stuff that's really important. <laughs> so I, I appreciate you all having me. You can check out Austin's journey on LinkedIn using the links in our description. Where Cultivated Culture has been doing through their website, cultivatedculture.com. All right, this has been Alex and Jasmine on this episode of Redefining Recruiting presented by Enroll. Until next time.